Hello everybody, welcome back. Here we are again, another week on The Passion Project. I am your wonderful host, as always, Scott Strange. And in a bit of a novelty this week, we are going to be talking about something that I sort of know things about, which I'm about as shocked as you all are. So, introducing the person who's going to talk to me about that, we have Matt this week. Hey Matt, how's it going? Uh, It's going great, how are you doing? Um, Not too bad, thank you very much for joining me. Um, of dis- course. Despite our brief hiccup when we tried to record a moment ago, <laughs> but oh well. Technology is always a wonderful beast. Um, <laughs> so what are you here to talk to me about this week? Uh, so I'm here to talk to you about board games. Yes, as I said. Modern I, and ancient. Excellent. Well, yes, my, my shelving full of assorted board games and the like depressingly large amount of money I've spent on them is testament to the fact that yes I actually know about a bit, a bit about this one so I may also have things to say yeah sounds good so okay well straight into it like why why board games what is it about board games new and old that you are a fan of that you like um yeah I mean there's there's a lot to like about especially modern board games um you know a lot of people have this memory of uh, growing up playing whatever board games were in the bottom of a closet somewhere, Monopoly or the Game of Life or something like that. But yep. uh, the the new innovations in board games offer so much more above and beyond that. Uh, so many more interesting decisions, interesting strategy in the game, um, a lot more uh, interesting ways to interact with your friends and family. Um, uh, they're just more fun than they used to be. So that's the main thing. Yeah, because... I definitely, yeah, my experience before I sort of got into them was, yeah, the, as you said, the obvious ones, the monopolies, the guess who's, the the very standard ones, and you don't kind of realize until you start looking into it just how deep the catalog of what is out there is. Yeah, and it's it's very easy to uh, to bag on all those old games, but they they had some things going for them. They just uh, they just missed the mark in a couple of areas. Yeah, possibly. so there are a lot of things that you can you can build on with the old games that uh, that can just be improved on a little bit. Yeah, you you could say that you know without without those old ones, the newer ones probably would not exist in the form they do. Everything's got to start somewhere. Yes, definitely. Okay, when exactly did you start sort of getting into the realm of board games, and what got you into them? Um, so I remember what it was for me was, uh, certainly when I was a kid, um, we were sort of in the habit of, uh, going to garage sales, rummage sales, whatever, and buying old board games, you know, mostly cause it was, uh, cheap, uh, and easy entertainment for kids. Um, and then at some point in, uh, in junior high or so I got into, um, that, that most addicting of all pastimes, uh, magic, magic uh, gathering. I guess I have, I have talked to someone about that before. um and so uh so that sort of drew me into this whole world of gaming that existed and i remember i went to a game night at the local comic book shop um mostly to play magic because that was mostly what local comic book shops were about was it like uh, the the point in time was it the friday night magic thing because that's what i learned Uh, about was a thing yeah no this was this was all well before friday night magic was a thing as far as i know this was just the the comic book store trying to get people in the door right um and so a guy there introduced me to a game called Acquire. Right. I mean, which I have is sort of I, a modern classic. Yeah, I've heard of that. I've never actually encountered it, but I, I know the name. Mm-hmm. So I think it was uh, originally published late '60s, early '70s, sometime. Hmm. Um, and so it's uh, it's an interesting mixture. It's a it's a stock market game. Um, 
but there's also a, a board component to it. So it's, you're building up these hotel chains um, in sort of a grid on the board. Mm. But as the hotel chains grow and run into each other, then they merge together. And then you have all these interesting options of what to do with your stock in these companies when they merge together. Do I trade this stock for the new one? Do I keep the old stock hoping that someone will restart that company and then my stock will be valuable again? Um, and so there's a lot of interesting positioning going on. Uh, and it's just it's just a world different from Monopoly or anything like that. And so yeah. that was really my first introduction to games of this sort. Yeah, and and it's normally yeah that that tends to be how it goes. Whether it's either you learn yourself or when you introduce someone else to it, you kind of get a thing, and it's suddenly like, oh, I I can do all this other stuff within like the realm of a board game that I did not expect to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Like pretty much the first time you do something that isn't just rolling a dice and moving a piece, you're like, oh right, I think I understand now. Yeah, and it could be a little overwhelming at first, but there's also just worlds of possibilities there that that you never really thought about before. Yeah, yeah. so obviously, yeah, that guy introduced you to that. So where did you go from there? Um, uh, from there, it might be actually another uh, another connection to Richard Garfield, who designed Magic. Um, he also designed a game called Robo Rally. Ah, yes. Um, which uh, which is another. It's it's a little bit closer to the old sort of roll and move go through a maze type of games but um in this one you're robots on a factory floor and there are all sorts of conveyor belts and lasers and all sorts of things around that push you out of where you're trying to go and try and blow you up for example and maybe the other robots are trying to blow you up as well um so it's also takes a takes a very straightforward concept it's a race from one end of the board to the other right but yeah. adds all these interesting new wrinkles on top of it to uh that just makes it much more intriguing and much more strategic, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because I think the, when I, I mean, going down the Richard Garfield sort of link, the, the first, when I decided to get into games, the first one that I bought was um, King of, what was it, King of New York, which is another one of his designs. Right. Which is, I mean, the original one he made was a game of, called King of Tokyo, which is, more or less a slightly more elaborate form of Yahtzee more than anything, like rolling dice, trying to match up pitches on the dice to... Right, but with giant monsters. Yeah, exactly, to attack your friends with giant, like, yeah, Godzilla-type monsters, except in a very cartoony-type fashion. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that kind of... Because that, that's what got me out of the, the giant monsters and the cartoonish style of that game was what initially appealed to me like just from right. someone not too familiar with the entire like culture of board games going on i said that looks cool i'm gonna get that uh-huh exactly and that's that's one of the things too because also so many of these old games i mean they just look so dry right yeah. i mean monopoly has almost no theme what to it whatsoever right you're sort of moving around the board and buying property and paying rent and things but mm. but it just looks tremendously dull yeah right? exactly um and and that's another thing that that modern games do right is they just sort of immerse you more in that theme whether that's you know rampaging monsters or uh you know they still have their their dry themes but um <laughs> they, the the immersion is another another great factor that a lot of people enjoy yeah it is definitely it's a harbor for a lot of good artwork these days the the board game realm because some of them, in fact, there are some games that are like ninety percent artwork and a little bit of game tacked on to them. Yeah, which which again, people have realized. You know, people have realized that if you can make something look good, 
kind of regardless of what is attached to it, a lot of people will still buy it because, you know, yeah. there's still a lot to be said from just people buying according to what looks good on a shelf or, yeah, anything like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, as someone who has uh, board game art mounted on my walls, I can't really criticize them yeah, for exactly. uh, concentrating on <laughs> Exactly. That, so. You're exactly the person they're aiming for. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so, so, yeah, okay. What do you, what do you, so, what are the first ones? So, obviously, you got into these couple of games. What are some of the other, like, early games that started sucking you in? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the one that no one can ever avoid when they're having this conversation is Settlers of Catan. Yeah, that um, is definitely... I think that I feel was th- the one that... I suspect really that even if me. you even if you haven't really gotten into much outside of the obvious board games, a lot of people still would have heard of that or had some kind of maybe encounter with Settlers of Catan above anything else. At least that one friend who's really trying to get you to play it, if nothing yeah. else. Yeah, exactly. So I remember in, uh, in college, definitely, um, I had this group of people that we would play some games, and we played... Um, like Axis and Allies, this uh, World War II game. We played a lot of Risk, that sort of thing. Um, uh, a game called Spy Alley, which is all uh, also roll and move, but you're also sort of trying to guess other people's secret identities and bluff for what your secret identity is and that sort of thing. Um, so still sort of very old-style games. But then one of my friends got Settlers of Catan for Christmas one year, mm. and it just changed our entire world. I think for the rest of that semester we played it at least once a night, if not two to three times a night. Right. It was just took over our entire lives, basically. Like, how, how long ago are we talking about this? How long ago was this, probably? This would have been, like, 2002, I think, 2003, right. so, somewhere in there. So this is, this is quite a while ago. So you've been... Yeah, you've been down this rabbit hole for quite a number of years now. Yes, I'm I'm very deep in. There's you no are, way out at this yeah, point. Yeah, you are f- significantly deeper than I am, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was even a latecomer to it because I think Settlers was originally published in like 95 or 96, somewhere yeah, in there. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, um, yeah, I think it's, it's like, of, it's definitely over 20 years old at this point. Yeah, I think it I think it migrated to the States at least um, about the, the time that we got into it. But certainly in Germany, it was popular for a long yeah. time before I was aware of it. Because, I mean, we, for, for whatever reason, I have established that Germany is like a very big board game hub. Yes. I'm not There's sure. There's actually some, some, some interesting history behind that. Uh, do, do you know um, much about that? A little bit. Because uh, certainly it was um, in the, a lot of the sort of gaming renaissance has been in the, the post-World War II era. Mm. Um. And so in the United States, at least, um, a lot of the sort of interest in gaming went into war games. Yeah. So whether that's sort of traditional moving cardboard chits around a board, war gaming, or like your miniatures gaming, like Warhammer and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, the, it, was just, it was just sort of a main focus for uh, American gaming for whatever reason. Um, and... Like the two most popular uh, settings for war games are uh, World War II and American Civil War. At least yeah. in in America, they are mm. um, just because those are sort of the the things of the most historical interest for people. Yeah, exactly. Because I guess yeah, in America, that's obviously the the Americans were heavily involved in World War Two, and mm-hmm. obviously the Americans were entirely involved in the American like, Civil War. <laughs> yes. And more so than uh, you know, the Americans did not have as big a prominent role in you know something like World War One, and right. Vietnam, Vietnam is probably too iffy a war to be making board games about. Maybe 
Yes, not at the time. It's it's coming back a little bit more now, but uh, certainly, yeah. Uh, and that's another thing, too, is the uh, American experience, sort of culturally, of World War II was very different from most of Europe, say. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, was, it was a very distant thing and, and something that uh, culturally we looked at as ourselves as the hero of that thing, which, yeah, exactly. you know, uh, that's, that's maybe a, a top, a whole topic yeah, unto a, yeah. itself. There, there's a whole lot to talk about there that can be broken <laughs> down another time by more knowledgeable people yes. probably. Yes, I think so. Um, so, so certainly it was, it was the sort of thing that Americans were more interested in sort of reliving. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas in Europe in general, you know, they had seen a lot more of the war up close and were far less interested in seeing it all again. And so yeah. I think gaming in Germany just sort of went in a very different direction yeah. and went sort of down this more economic route, yeah. more so than the war gaming route. Because, mm. yeah, and I now, because these days, one of the the biggest board gaming conventions that exists is now like held every year in so the, the, the German city of Essen, I think it's called. Yes. So that's like and then there's very... also for whatever reason the the Nuremberg Toy Fair is also very yeah big. That, that's very huge as well like it's a, a lot of the big yeah. announcements in that kind of world come out of that so for whatever reason Germany's become sort of a hub for this kind of hobby stuff yeah and so for for a long time all of the sort of great board game designers were German I mean yeah. Rainer Knizia Wolfgang Kramer. Um, uh, all sorts of people in that line, but that's that's spreading out a lot more as well. Yeah, it's definitely there's a lot more widespread of, of designers going on these days. Mm -hmm. Okay, stepping stepping back, just to, obviously you said you got you know into the clear gateway of Settlers of Catan, but for people who don't know, for the people out there who don't know what that is, give it give it a bit of an explanation, give it the pitch talk. Right. So, um, Settlers of Catan is a game where you uh, are settling this island called Catan, um, and you start with just one, uh, two settlements rather, um, and some roads to maybe spread out a little bit from there. Mm -hmm. um, and the the main mechanic of settlers is that the board is made up of these hexes. There's forests and there's mountains and uh, plains, and so all of these hexes produce different resources like sheep or wood or bricks or ore, and then you use those resources to then build new roads, build new settlements, and then sort of expand your civilization as you go. And you're just in a race with the other people to uh, grow your civilization as quickly as possible. Um, there's a lot of trading back and forth, and, you know, you can play cards to attack each other a little bit. Uh, so there's a lot of negotiation involved. Um, and so it brings into play a lot of those things that feel great about something like Monopoly. Mm. Like, you know, you're building up your empire and trading and negotiating and you you know, uh, have all of that interaction um, in a much more compact sort of form. It takes about 45 minutes to an hour to play a game um, and without, you know, any of that eliminating players. So then the first person out in a game of Monopoly has to go sit by themselves for two hours while everyone else's finishes. Uh, yeah. there's, there's just none of that in Monopoly. Um, and the board itself is uh, modular. It's randomized where the hexes go every time. So every time you play the game, it's going to be an entirely different setup at the beginning. Yeah, which obviously allows a lot more replayability going forward. Hence why you and your friends were able to play it like every night. <laughs> yes. Because yeah, it, cause it eliminates the thing of like there being, I guess, because if, if something has like a, 
static board every time something like that might be easy to be find the perfect way to play and just do that every time so whoever does this right. is going to be the person that wins mm-hmm. so yeah so did you have did you know a lot of people at the dime who were also into like similar stuff so it was easy to find people to play with um yeah i certainly my my group of friends we were we were sort of weirdos i admit uh <laughs> but my group of friends were all very into this at the same time i mean to the point where we had to go out and buy the expansions for settlers which let you play with five or six players because four at a time wasn't enough we <laughs> had we had too many people for that yeah um so yeah certainly in uh in college that was my uh my 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 group of friends were all into into gaming so that was very easy to find yeah i was gonna say obviously there's within the board game world i know there's I guess what we, you, you would say are like the genres of board games, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. So what what would you say, like what would you say Settlers of Catan falls into in the realm of like board game genres? Uh, I mean, so yeah, generally it's, I would say it's an economic game. This is, this is uh, a point of some contention in the board gaming community. Uh, for a long time, the two big genres were Euro games, which were more uh, economic, less direct confrontation um uh a lot more sort of planning and strategy yeah um uh versus american style games which tended a lot more toward uh war games more direct confrontation a lot of like we move our armies around the map and then we fight uh that sort of thing um and for a while that had the name ameritrash for some reason which is a very well it's a because I mean, it still floats around out there, but it very much is a right. like a terrible word to describe anything. Yes, I was going to say the reason why the word came about is because some people are snobs, yeah, uh, and there, think their games are better than others. Oh, <laughs> there is there is definitely a lot of that I have established in in the board uh-huh. world. There is that's still a prominent feature of a lot of people. Yes, uh, and then of course for a while the people who enjoyed American style games took on Ameritrash as like a, a label of pride and. Yeah. There, there was a lot of sniping on internet forums about it, but... And it still continues to this day. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but I... uh, Sorry, you carry... There's also a lot of blurring of the lines between those sorts of games as well, right? There are yeah. tons of games now that sort of incorporate both sides of things. Like, yes, let's have a war game, but where you also have to be careful to, you know, build up the economy of the territories that you're creating and, um, you know... Uh, curry favor with the people that you're conquering and show them that you're actually a better leader than whoever you know was in charge of their land before and that sort of thing so yeah because i mean if you because if you go deeper into i guess subgenres within that there's like or even like what am i thinking the the way a game plays so like you know you have a variety of things like you might have something that's resource management, which is basically a game which involves, yeah, like managing those whatever resources you have, whether you're picking up cards or moving around a map to find resources that you need to build stuff up, which I guess would be sort mm-hmm. of like in the Catan thing where you're, like, you're getting your, your woods and your metals and your etc. to build something. So like that tends to fall in the realm of resource management. And, and then what? There's like... I mean, there's, there is a, a very wide assortment of different things. Like, there's like deck deck building games, which right. I guess t- take a sort of small leaf out of the the magic sort of realm, the magic playbook. 
Yes, this was a this is sort of one of the the big trends of uh of a few years ago was a guy named Donald X Vaccarino. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce his last name, but oh, well, I um, can't I can't say otherwise. So let's assume you're right. <laughs> yes, until I hear from him, I'll go with that. <laughs> I mean, he uh, is a prominent listener on this uh, podcast, so yes. Um, so uh, he uh, he came out with this game called Dominion, where you start with a few very simple cards in your deck. Basically, all they do is a few of them give you points, and some of them give you money, which you can use to buy other cards. And so on your turn, you draw a few cards, use them to buy a new card, and then that new card gets added into your deck and shuffled in, and it'll be something that you can draw on a future turn. Mm. Um, and so the game is very much appeals to uh, collectible card game players uh, because you really want to buy cards that uh, combo together well because um, they all have different sorts of abilities like some of them give you extra money some of them let you buy extra cards some of them just let you you know do other actions have other cool effects um, and so you want to put together a deck that will earn you points as efficiently as possible or at least earn you points more efficiently than everyone else at the table yeah and so that became a, a sort of genre unto itself, the deck building game. Um, and then just every third game that came out that year was, this is deck building, but it's like this with a new yeah. twist on it. And so some of those, uh, again, worked better than others, but it was just a very trendy uh, mechanic to use for a while. And, and you yeah. see that a lot. You, in, yeah. uh, you definitely notice that. Like something comes out, a game that either you know maybe creates a new I mean, yeah, mechanic is the word that people tend to use for that kind of thing. The, the way a game plays is sort of referred mm-hmm. to as its mechanics. But yeah, like something will come up and do it successfully. So then, yeah, like the, you see an avalanche of things trying the same thing to varied levels of su- success. Right. So like what are the other what are the other different kind of mechanics that maybe a game, like different board games have within them? To your like, if you if you were trying to list them, how how would you list and describe them? Right. So another big trend um, that uh, from a game that came out probably, she's fifteen years ago now, something like that, um, is worker placement, where you have sort of a limited number of workers available to you. And again, depending on the theme, that might be you know the peasants helping the king build this castle, or uh, you know cowboys in the old west, or uh, whatever. Um, and then you can send them out to do various actions around the board. So, you know, maybe I send my two cowboys over here to this to rob this bank and then they give me a bunch of money or something along those lines. But you have sort of limited resources and you're competing for actions among all the other players. Because yeah. typically when someone goes to a specific spot to take that action, then no one else can take that action that turn. So you have to figure out how to allocate your limited resources, your workers, to do all the things that you want to do on a given turn. Yeah, and, um, and normally those workers are indicated by like, you know, you might have tokens or cubes or little bits and pieces. So you have your little pool of, a limited pool of, of workers that you have to use on your turns. Yes. The thing that really kicked that off was a game called Kalos, mm. which was sort of a, a mishmash of a lot of uh, sort of mechanics that had been floating around for a while, but it sort of remixed them all into something very new and again for about three years after Kalos came out every every third game was this is worker placement but with this twist and now you're on a farm and you know whatever it is uh just all sorts of different variations on that same theme and yeah because one of the one of the popular i mean one of the popular ones that i have that's sort of branched out of that is lords of water deep which 
they basically took that and they also like threw it into the Dungeons and Dragons world to try like exactly cover both of their bases. Uh huh. And so you know, if you like worker placement games, but also you like owl bears, then Lords of Waterdeep is the game for you. Exactly, so. and it's I guess it sort of becomes a way for someone who likes those kind of games, which might seem you know, like if you're like, oh, I don't really care about a game where you're just putting people on a farm because and you have like friends who are more into the fantasy side of Dungeons and Dragons that might be enough just having that Dungeons and Dragons thing sort of draped over the top of it might be enough for someone to drag their friends into it to giving it a shot yeah exactly and uh certainly different gamers also will sort of gravitate toward different things, right? There will be some people who say, I don't care what the theme is, I will play any worker placement game. Mm. Or, I don't care what the theme is, I will not play any worker placement game, yeah. right? Um, and then there are others who choose much more thematically, right? Like, if the theme is appealing, then they'll give it a try, and then yeah. and then they'll figure it out later. It's sort of like, you know, movies or something. We all yeah. have that friend who has watched every zombie movie they can possibly find. Yeah, regardless uh-huh. of taste or quality. Yes, exactly. I definitely have a friend who does that with comic book movies. <laughs> and he claims to like them all, so I think he has severe mental impairment. Uh, yes, clearly it can't be that every one of them is actually good. But. Yeah, so so where do you fall on this spectrum? Uh, I definitely uh, am a lot more mechanically driven. Right. Um, I'm certainly uh, attracted to themes from time to time. Although a lot of times I'm attracted to weird themes, like I have a game that's about filing paperwork. Ah, yes. Uh, so you just have a stack of paperwork on your on your board, and on your turn you get to take a certain number of actions, either working on your own paperwork or going around to other people's desk and making them work on their paperwork because you're trying to get like certain files done at a certain time. It's a it's a very strange theme. Yes, and it it sounds tremendously boring, but that's exactly why I wanted it because it yes. just sounded so bizarre. So what is that one called? Uh, it's called Ad Acta. Right. Um, and it's another one of these games published by a small German company that I, I don't even know if you can find it anymore, but I'm sure there are copies around on eBay or something. But mm. Yeah, because it's kind of weird that those kind of... Because there's a lot of examples of those kind of weird things where it's the kind of stuff that you would either never want to or be completely bored with doing in real life but somehow you you slap a game over it and suddenly it becomes this like cutthroat do or die thing exactly right i mean uh so one of the the biggest board game hits in recent memory is uh called agricola mm. which is a game about farming which yeah. you know again on the face of it farming is very difficult work yeah there, it's a lot of backbreaking labor and because this is also medieval farming of course so the yeah. realities of medieval farming are not something that uh most of us would care yeah. to partake in exactly but it, it makes for a great game yeah like it, it really cuts out the heavy labor and eventually dying of disease part of medieval farming yes. which is always a bonus <laughs> so do you have a particular Just focuses on the fun part exactly the the bringing in produce and crushing your rival farmers uh-huh and uh having cute baby sheep on your farm yes exactly the main reason anyone has a farm yes so what do you have what would you say is your favorite mechanic oh that's a difficult question um 
Okay, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you. You can pick a couple. I'll I'll be generous. All right, I would say very broadly, um, my favorite mechanic is generally engine building. Okay, so is what now, I would call it. Now you're gonna have to so explain what, what that is. Yes. Uh, so so generally, it's the sort of thing where you um, sort of build up a lot of. Um, abilities and powers and maybe tools and that sort of thing that um, sort of help you do things very efficiently. So I'll use Agricola as an example. Um, one of the things that's really important is in Agricola is not only are you trying to build up your farm by, you know, planting fields and building fences and stables and getting lots of animals, all that sort of thing. Um, you also have to feed your family as you go. You have to make enough food for yourself that you can uh, uh, feed yourself and keep your workers working and all of that sort of thing. So one of the things you can do in Agricola is build uh, improvements, they're called. So these would be things like an oven or a bread paddle or something like that, that all make your actions more efficient. So as the game goes on, maybe early on you say, I go here and I get one grain and that's my whole action for the turn. But then by the end of the game, you say, I go here and I get one grain and I have this card that says when I get a grain, I also get a pumpkin. And this card that says when I get a pumpkin, I also get to, you know, get a sheep or something like that. And so you just kind of build up these uh, uh, bonuses, I guess, on top of each other that just sort of make everything more efficient. Um, and so it, so it really does have that idea of sort of tuning an engine and bringing all the parts together in a way that uh, that makes everything work. Yeah, you you kind of get a, getting everything to work nicely in synergy with each other. You're building like yeah, something that just everything flows onto the next thing very nicely, so it all benefits itself and keeps yeah. itself humming along to your benefit. Yeah, exactly. Or I played a game uh, for the first time a couple of weeks ago called My Village, where one of the things you do is um, you you pick a couple of dice every turn, and then the total on the dice tells you what action you get to do. But you can do a thing where maybe I have five different cards that all key off of the number six. So mm. when I get a six on my dice, then I can take all five of those actions rather yeah. than just one at a time. Yeah. That sort of thing. Exactly. And that they, they tend to be the kind of like, yeah, as you said, you sort of enjoy them or those style of games more because that tends to like play on planning ahead, forming a, a certain tactical strategy because like you've got to have to think further ahead into the game to be like, okay, this is what the kind of thing I'm working towards doing, but, you know, it's going to take me several turns of doing this to get there. Exactly. That long-term planning is very interesting and enjoyable to me. Yes, yes. Where I am I, definitely much more of like a, I enjoy the unpredictable chaos of certain board games. I think that's, uh -huh. I, th I think we could be, we possibly fall on like opposite sides of, of taste. <laughs> like I, I am, because I know like, there tends to be in the board game world a lot of people do not enjoy the random aspects of some games, like where things are maybe based on the outcome of a dice roll because they like less less than a movement, but it's more like you're trying to do an action in the game and you have to roll the dice and you only succeed if it if you get like a five or a six. So and a lot of people do not enjoy that kind of randomness in their games where I sort of, I'm like, I enjoy the thing that, I enjoy the part where I don't have control over some aspects of a game. Right. And I think one of the things that um, modern board games do better, right, is because, again, if you go back to playing Monopoly, it's like, well, I have to roll a seven this turn to land on that property that I want to buy, right? You have no control over yeah. the dice whatsoever. 
right? But if you compare to something like uh, King of New York or King of Tokyo, right, where one of the things you can do is buy special powers that your monster has, and maybe that lets you change what dice you have, right? Mm. So some people can play a more... Um, can try and plan ahead more, whereas other people might want to play the high-risk, high-reward strategy where they're just going to trust the dice to do what they want to do, um, and they're not going to waste any effort building up those special powers. They're just going to um, use what they get when it comes to them. So, so yeah, a lot, having choices as well about whether yeah. you want to take that risk or not can be a really great aspect of a game. Because, yeah, because, for example, in, in that game, King of, King of Tokyo, you have six dice, and you roll them, and each of the dice has different pitches on it so it might be hearts if you want to heal your thing claws if you want to attack them and then i can't remember what what the icon is for if you want to buy stuff but yeah you so you roll those and you get your results and then you have the choice to either re-roll some of those dice if you don't like the results you've got or like keep whatever the rolls results you got to use them for whatever purpose and yeah it's sort of let's say you want to try get more like of the whatever the dice result is you need to buy stuff you have to take the gamble of re-rolling the dice and you may get the result you might want you may not and that's kind of the the risk you're taking yeah and there's a there's sort of an interesting sort of dichotomy there between kind of the strategic where you want to be able to line up everything in place and then like push the one domino over and then everything falls over exactly as you want it to versus the tactical where it's more, you know, dealing with the situation that comes to you and, and finding the best way to, to sort of deal with those random elements. Yeah. Cause, cause I think a lot of mine comes from the fact that like, I, I am, I am the one, I'm like the board gaming person in like my, my social circle is what it boils down to. Right. Like no one's quite into them as much as I am. So uh-huh. If I if I want to get people into them, I have to find people who I can get to play with me. So my thing is like, I'm like, I need to find games that other people are gonna want to play, and you know, because if you play something that has like a lot of like, yeah, let's say something like Agricola, like you were saying, like that's something. You, the more you know the game, the better. Like, because you can like build certain strategies. The further, the more knowledge you have of the game, which can make it when I'm like often like trying to lure people into a board gaming trap, it's a bit more difficult to get people into that kind of thing. Whereas if if it's a game that like even though I own the game because there's a certain amount of randomness in it, I can't be I can't have gotten the game perfectly down because there's certain elements of the game that are out of my control. So if you get new people into playing those games, they feel like they have more of a shot and don't aren't automatically going to lose against the person who owns the game. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of the games with the with the chaos in it, things like rolling dice or, or that sort of thing. Um, this is where a lot of the sort of fun factor comes into play, yeah. which, of course, fun is a very subjective thing. Yeah. Right. But it's a lot easier um, to, to find people who sort of enjoy that kind of gambling, push your luck, roll the dice sort of yeah. thing. Um, that that's something we're a lot more used to thinking of as this is really fun and exciting yeah. and that like, sort of thing. Yeah. So. It's a very it's a very simple, like, that part in your brain where you're like, oh, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Hey, it happened. Like, it's a very simple, easy to, like, process kind of immediate satisfaction level of fun. Yeah. So just, yeah, it's like, very, it's a lot more visceral, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And, you yeah, know, it's, you know, it gets, it's easier to get people, when you're introducing new people, I find, into that level of thing. And then, yeah. then, then maybe you can branch out to other things, but it's definitely as an introductory sort of level. It's I find it much easier to get people along those lines. Yeah, there are also a lot of great uh, dexterity-based games 
So these would be things like Jenga or things like it, where it's like, oh, I have this tower and I have to move pieces around without knocking it over or, um, you know, something along those lines, like there's balancing pieces involved or that sort of thing that again, are very sort of visually striking. Like you see someone playing a game like this and you're like, I want to know what's going on there because there's some crazy tower that's about to fall over and it looks amazing, right? It just draws people in and is a lot more sort of directly exciting. Yeah, and it's also those ones those ones tend to be also very simple to teach because it's like, okay, you need to put this on this and make it not fall over. Or you need to, you know, pull this out of here and make it not topple. Or I have I have one of those kind of games which is called Flick 'em Up, which is basically this big wooden thing, which is basically a shootout between cowboys is the basic Uh thing of it. So you just build this little diorama of like two cowboys facing off and you just literally flick little discs at each other as the bullets. So it's a very easy, like, all you need to do is take this, flick that, and try hit that guy on the other side. And that's a very yeah, exactly. easy, basic concept for anyone to grasp. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, it, and it opens up, like, yeah, it kind of opens up this sm- level of smack talking and just, like, talking smack to each other. And, like, when you hit, exactly. hit the right person at the right time, you're like, yes. So, yeah, it's a very, yeah. Simple thing. It's also which, the sort of game that uh, that gets better and better a few drinks into the exactly. Evening, it, if you've got a plan nine turns ahead, that that just goes right out the window very quickly. But yeah, exactly. Where where especially because the the company that makes that game they, they call their company Pretzel Games, which um, is named because they want to design all their games as something you can play while having beer and pretzels. Yeah. So so yes, they they're very heavily trying to play into that like rowdy drinking audience. Uh-huh. It's, again, funny because, you know, you will certainly find snobbish people lurking around on the internet who will dismiss things as beer and pretzel games. Yeah. But um, if that's the sort of thing that you enjoy. Exactly. Um, and also, if you can't enjoy a good beer and pretzels game, I don't know what's wrong with you. Yeah, I know. I'm a, come watching on. your friend try and balance a thing on top of a, like, three-foot-tall tower is very entertaining. Exactly. So, is there any particular style of games that you don't, you're not a fan of? Um, I don't really play a lot of, uh, sort of straight war games. Um, right. and there's a lot more, uh, sort of very tactical war game type things. So like there's a, there's a Star Wars miniatures game where you've got like various fighters like flying around and, um, and sort of in direct combat like that, that I've, I've never particularly enjoyed. Uh, there's a Game of Thrones game along the same lines where you're sort of moving armies around in all directions and there's you know, people wanting to stab you in the back at any given moment, as you might expect yeah. um, in the Game of Thrones setting. I once, uh, that, before that I've never I'd, particularly enjoyed most of those. But yeah. Before I'd, like, really gotten into board games at all, I went to, um, they did PAX in Australia years ago, which is, oh, they did uh-huh. it for the first time, which is, for people who don't know, it's basically this big convention which is focused on, like, games of all varieties. So it's, like, board games and video games, and there's a big area for like, magic and collectible card games. And So there's all these different things spread out. There's displays, there's presentations. There's basically a big area where they just had board games, and you could just grab them and sit down with your friends and play some games. So me and my friends, none of us were really playing, had played many board games at the time. We was like, oh, let's sit down and play a game. 
And we saw the Game of Thrones board game, which we foolishly thought, hey, we like Game of Thrones, let's play that. <laughs> and after approximately like an hour and a half of sitting down and trying to pass the rules uh, and what to do, we just kind of abandoned ship immediately and just went, we've made a big mistake. That's definitely one of the more complicated side. It's, it's based off of a game called Diplomacy, mm. um, which is sort of the, the purest form of, of that sort of game where you just have all these you know, armies on the board and they're moving around attacking each other as, as you often have in war games. But all of the armies are sort of of equal strength with each other. Mm. And so the only way that you can um, actually defeat another army is if you're supported by another army that you're moving in. So you have to like convince one of your friends to gang up against another one of your friends so that the two of you can take them out and take over their territory and divide it between you. And then eventually, inevitably, your first friend stabs you in the back because they've made us another secret deal with your other friend. It's it's all it's all a very wonderful game that I would very much love to enjoy, but I'm afraid I just don't. But it's a yeah. brilliant game. Yeah, especially because there's a lot of those kind of games that involve a lot of betraying and like making deals with people only to go and stab them in the back and mm -hmm. they are definitely the kind of games which you need to find the right people to play with because some people will take it far more personally than others yes definitely because yeah because i'm definitely the kind of person that can enjoy those kind of games probably not quite to the viciousness that diplomacy is but i i, I enjoy a game where it gives me the chance to be a bit of a dick to my friends but yes, the only reason I don't enjoy it is because I'm terrible at it. If I yeah. were better at it, I would love it. But, but yeah, I, I, I would only play those with like, I would have to know the person and I would only pick particular people to play it with because some people I know will take it better than others, basically. Right. It's either that or play with perfect strangers at a convention that you never yeah, have to like, get in. I, I will be the worst human being in the world to you, laugh <laughs> about it, then go home and sleep very soundly knowing I never have to deal with you again. Yes. So have you been to like many convention type things or any of that kind of stuff? Um, I've been to a couple. Um, I went to uh, Gen Con, which is sort of the big uh, the big gaming convention here in the United States. Mm. Um, and then a couple of smaller ones. Uh, the The biggest thing about those is they're they're more about finding the new games and sort of getting demos with the newer stuff that's coming out, which is always very interesting to see what the, what the hot game is going to be for this year and maybe get a chance to play it before everybody else and, mm. uh, and that sort of thing. But I usually found myself at them just going off into a corner to play games with the people I came with. So yeah, so you suddenly <laughs> realize the target audience for them. Yeah, but. You suddenly realize I spent a bunch of money to come here and do what I could have done at home. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because but I did get to play that game uh, Dominion that I mentioned before most of everyone else did, and I uh, thought it was wonderful. So that was pretty fun. Has there anything else you've like stumbled across in that situation, like in advance before it had been released or anything like that that caught your eye? Um, uh, so there was one I definitely missed out on. That same year was the the year the Battlestar Galactica game came out, right? Um, which is uh, so Battlestar Galactica, the, the board game is one of the best uh, sort of integrations of theme and mechanics that I know of, because, uh, of course, the, the whole premise of the show is that there are uh, robots who look just like us, right, who are secretly infiltrating the human race to try and kill us all. Right. Um, and so in the game, you have this this mechanic where everyone gets dealt a loyalty card and maybe at the beginning of the game, someone is a Cylon and they're secretly trying to undermine everyone else at the table. 
So it's nominally a cooperative game where the humans are fighting to survive, but there's possibly a traitor among them who's just waiting for the perfect moment to just strike and cripple the human fleet or whatever whatever their approach is to, to taking out all the humans. Yeah, yeah. And but it, it has this this fantastic mechanic that that reflects the show that in the show there were certain Cylons who didn't know they were Cylons at the beginning until a certain point their programming sort of kicked in and then they said, oh, I'm a Cylon, now I need to kill everyone. Yeah. Um, and so halfway through the game, you get a second loyalty card. And maybe you thought you were human for the first half of the game, but now you're a Cylon and so your goals have suddenly changed. Yeah. And I mean, I have, because obviously, yeah, that, that, I think that's, that's the first big one of those that sort of games I think that came out. Like it's, they sort of call them hidden traitor games, I guess is what they tend to call them. Yes. Um, so yeah, and that that's called, that has that was sort of went on to inspire a bunch of other ones. And I think the big thing about Battlestar Galactica, because doesn't that one take quite a long time to play? Uh two to three hours. I don't consider that quite a long time, but I know a no. lot of people would. Yeah, I get again. It's like it depends who you're playing with. Yeah, again, exactly. Because I definitely have some games like. Certainly when I started buying games, I aim for the shorter ones. But then like as things progressed, I sort of like, okay, I can start branching out to things that take a bit longer. And after I've had the chance of convincing people to play some things that take a bit longer, like it becomes easier. So now you start going, okay, I can buy a few more that take take a bit longer. Yeah, once you've set the bait on your friends and now you're exactly. just them in. Exactly. Because, yeah, I, I recently bought a similar game along those lines. I mean, it's very similar along those lines, but it's based on the movie The Thing. Uh-huh. And, I want to try yeah, this one. Yeah, and because it it's very much the same kind of game. Everyone gets dealt um, cards at the start and says if you're human or it says if you're infected is the thing. And most of the people are going around, going on missions around the base and everyone's trying to, someone's choosing who to take on the missions without knowing if they're the humans or the things and you're trying to contribute different cards to pass these missions. But obviously if you are the thing, you're trying to hand in cards that sabotage things or intentionally make the mission fail and as the game goes on you know you'll get loyalty cards dealt out again to find out because in the movie more and more people get infected by the thing as it goes on so more people can get infected as the game goes on so it's very much the similar vibe as um yeah as Battlestar Galactia with I think it's slightly simpler in its mechanics and also plays a bit shorter so yeah mm -hmm. I think that's the main benefit that it has going for it if you're trying to get people into it yeah, and it's always interesting. I mean, I'm talking about all these games as if these are these are brilliant new ideas that no one's come up with before. But you can trace all of these hidden trader games back to, um, depending on who you played it with, you might call it Werewolf or Mafia. Yeah. But these sorts of social deduction games where it's like, okay, one of us is secretly a werewolf trying to kill all the villagers. Mm. Um, and you just sort of talk it out and try and figure out who's lying about who they are to figure out who the real werewolf is. So all of these are just that game with yeah. a lot more sort yeah. of chrome on top yeah exactly because at because those kind of games which as you said they call them social deduction at their base it's basically a group of people kind of lying to each other and then accusing someone like and there's very little like the entire game is made by the people talking around a table because right. normally normally they consist of cards that say you are this person or you are like a werewolf or a traitor and then everyone talks and tries to figure it out and that's the extent of the game right exactly and it tends to be obviously yeah 
that tends to be the people who like the the more game aspects of games are like the the building up of systems and the tactics and stuff like that they tend to like those style of games a lot less yeah but i think i think Battlestar galactica is a great compromise there because the people who enjoy the gaminess of it right they get all of that sort of added meat on the bones and then the people who are more into the social deduction are just like watching you the whole time trying to figure out if you're slipping up and are secretly a Cylon, but you're trying not to show it. And yeah, because from what I, from my experience, I've shown like those style of games seem to have been the best for kind of luring people in to who have never played right. games before. Because I think they seem they diverge the most from what people think board games are. Uh huh. So yeah, so you're like, okay, there's no board and literally one of you is lying and we need to figure out who it is and let's all yell at each other for like 10 minutes until we figure it out. And people right. sort of people come out of it being like, oh, wow, okay, I did not realize that's like what a board game could be considered to be. Uh-huh. And it certainly helps that I think people have more positive associations with playing Werewolf than, you know, Monopoly or something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. So like, if you have that that's a better in to, to get their attention. Yeah, especially and because if you're doing something like that with your friends, it, it's a very it's a very social occasion kind of thing. Like it's a very social event. Everyone's always talking and stuff like that. So it tends to stand out and really like get people's attention a lot more because it's not a bunch of people quietly sitting around a board. Yes. Yeah. Again, the the fun factor is a lot more evident there. Yeah, and because recently. Um, uh, there's a there's, yeah sort of along those lines. There's a social deduction game called Secret Hitler, which is something that I've played a lot recently with my friends. Whenever they come around, one of my friends bought that, so we've played a lot of Secret Hitler because it tends to it's it's a, it seems to be a good one of those games where you know there's a bunch of people who are liberals, half the people are fascists, and one person is Hitler, but no one really knows who like even the the fascists don't know who Hitler is. Uh-huh. Like, so even the people on Hitler's side don't know who Hitler is, but um, like people are trying, like you have to pass policies. Like each each round, there's a there's someone who's a chancellor who's like the president. They pick a vice chancellor to get voted in, and then they pick three cards which are policies, and the policies could say either fascists or liberals on them. And then the first person has to take one out of their hand and pass it to the next person, and leaving them with. It could be, you know, two liberal ones, two fascist ones, or one of each. And then that person has to select one to put down to pass as a policy. So depending on what you do, you could, like, if they put down a fascist one, someone could claim, oh, I gave you a liberal and a fascist one. Why did you put down the fascist one? You must be a fascist. And and you're basically going along trying to pass as many policies on your side as you can. And you either need to kill Hitler or pass, like, it's a certain number of policies for your team, like five or six, I think. But right. basically, everyone we've managed to introduce that to has, like, as soon as they wrap their head around it, get into the game super well. Mm-hmm. Like, we because we were playing it, and then a friend had, like, a couple of her friends around who weren't really the game-playing type. But were like, hey, come over, come play, have a few rounds with us. If if they hate it, that's fine. They can, you can just go off and do your own thing. But they came over, and, like, within two rounds, these two girls were, like, the fucking best liars I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Like they just like played us all completely, and it was kind of amusing because yeah. they were they turned around from being very wary of the idea of playing this game to start with. You could tell they were just like, eh, fine, 
but to suddenly by the end of it just being like, I want to buy this game. There's there's something sort of universal about that, like wanting to get away with something or figure out which of your friends is the is lying to you. Like the the drama inherent there yeah. is like hardwired into all of us, which is why we all love reality TV shows so exactly. much, right? Exactly. Like it's just it's just reality TV shows, but like in compressed ten minute form that you can play over and over and over again. Yeah, and because I've always found in playing those games, because a lot of people when they're new to them, they don't know what to do, so they just sort of tell the truth or they say what they have so i always go into that game and from like early on from the beginning i will lie my ass off from the start just as like so when the game ends i can just be like hey i was lying that entire time like wait i can i can do that like yes yes you can so even if i don't win i just like like to set the tone of like yeah you can do whatever the fuck you want yeah exactly Mm. so so do you have a regular group of like do you do you have friends you meet up with like on a semi regular basis and play with this that particular group or do you go off to like I don't know, are they like board game cafes or as you said like the comic book place you went to initially years and years ago are there places like that you go to? Um, yeah, so there's a, a, a weekly group that I meet with here. My wife and a couple of our friends is uh, uh, that group makes up most of my gaming these days. Um, there are definitely uh, sort of more public groups so a lot of times hosted by game stores or comic book stores that sort of thing um in a in a big city about an hour away there's a group that regularly has like 75 to 100 people probably at their at their events um to the point where they've they've rented out like basically a an office suite in like a little office park uh, where they keep all the games and that's where the meetings are all the time so they found a, a huge community there um, but yeah, it is always sort of difficult to, uh, to find that, that regular group because, because public groups are good because there's a lot of people there, but you sort of never know who's going to be there yeah, and that you sort can't, of thing. So. You can't guarantee the quality of the people. Yes, exactly. And definitely within like the board gaming realm, the quality of people can vary, can be really great, but can also be like not so great. <laughs> Yeah, it's the it's the sort of thing you have to be careful with. The first time you go to a group, you always like bring a friend to sort of be like, well, if these people are weirdos, I need you to get me out of there, you know, that sort of thing. But most of the people I've met gaming uh, have been really great. So. Yeah, have you had any of those like not great stereotypical experiences that people kind of envision? Um, let's see, nothing too bad for me. Um, I think part of that is that I fit the gamer stereotype. You yeah. know, I'm a kind of slightly paunchy white guy so when i walk into a game store like nobody looks yeah there's at like, me at, like one of us or anything one like of us yeah exactly so uh so i haven't had any issues there uh but there have been a couple of public groups that i've gone to that i've just been like well this was this was all right but i don't know that i'm gonna come back yeah and you said your wife did she play games before she met you or did you drag her down with you into that I, I definitely dragged her into it. Um, she gives me a lot of crap about the, the games that I started her off playing. Which one? Um, uh, so, so one of them that I started her with was a game called Space Alert. Ah, um, uh, yes. Which I is know that. thematically wonderful. Your, uh, your explorers on a cut rate uh, exploration ship that's been like basically duct taped together um, 
Uh, and so you're just like get warped out in the middle of nowhere and try desperately to survive for 10 minutes. Um, and it's actually a real time game. So mm. as you're playing the game, there's like a soundtrack that tells you, oh, there's a monster coming in from the port side of the ship. So you have to go deal with that. And then a couple minutes later, there's a monster coming in from the other side of the ship and somebody has to go over there and you have to sort of plan out all of your movements beforehand. Um, so I sort of threw her into the deep end with that one, but yeah. she loved it. So I don't know what she's complaining about. Yeah, I I definitely another one I've found really great for getting people in who've never played games is another real time game. It's called Escape from the Cursed Temple. Uh huh. Uh, I know which, this one. Yeah, which basically has it has a, every round of the game goes for ten minutes, and it has like a soundtrack that goes with the game, and you're basically, um, it's cooperative. So you're you're all playing together, working towards the same goal. Has up to five people, and you're basically rolling dice with different pitches on it, and depending on what the pitches are, they mean different things. And you have a part, this stack of cardboard tiles. So you're exploring around the, each time you roll a couple of things, you have to roll a couple of pitches to basically explore and open the next tile. And you go around looking through this cavern, but every, every few minutes, the soundtrack like gongs and you have to run back to um, the, the starting point and like certain things happen. So it's basically hectic rolling of dice because certain things you roll like, you get these black skull pitches, which means you can't actually roll those dice anymore. And the only way you can unlock those is if you or someone else on your team rolls like these uh, the, the gold skulls on your dice. So you're yelling at people going, does anyone have these skulls? I can't roll my dice. And it just turns into this like 10 minutes of panicked, hectic yelling at each other and rolling dice while, while like this fucking increasingly stressful soundtrack plays in the background. And you make a mad dash for the uh -huh. end. And it's, yeah, it's just like a, it's just a very hyperactive, stressful 10 minutes. And yeah, pretty much everyone mm -hmm. I've played a round of that game with, as soon as it ends, they just go, okay, let's do that again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and the, you got the Indiana Jones theme and it comes with those amazing, uh, like Indiana Jones looking tokens yep. to represent you. And, yep. And yeah. a bunch of little like silver, like emerald gem things and all stuff like that. Uh -huh. So. I, I have have yet to play that game with anyone who hasn't wanted to play it more immediately afterwards. Yeah, I love I love all the the real time games. Uh, I'm I'm just a sucker for those. Yeah, I I um, definitely yeah I'm I'm quite a fan of those as well. I I recently mm -hmm. got um, Captain Sonar. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, which yeah, for people who don't know, it's basically it's yeah, it, it's played in two teams. Like you basically sit opposite sides of a table of each other with a big, like, cardboard barrier in between, and you are pilots of a submarine crew. And each person has, it's like it's best played with two teams of four. It basically should be played with two teams of four, and each person has a role. So one person is navigating, basically saying which direction the submarine should go. Another person is like listening to the other team say the exact same thing because they're trying to chart where that where the other team is going and one person is managing the weapon systems and another person is like trying to like make sure things don't break down so you're you're all doing these things at the same time as trying to listen to what the other team is doing track them down and destroy them and yeah again it's a lot of yelling and each kind of role has to check with the other role before they can do something and it's all this, yeah, constant communicating and constant listening to the other team. And then everyone will like, everyone will like, yell, stop. I want to shoot a torpedo at the other team. And then they have to say whether it hit them or not. And sometimes it'll be like, oh, like it hit them for like 
one point of damage, which basically means you are one spot away from where they are. So now you know where they are. Uh-huh. So you're like, shit, we've got to chase them. So then they're, and then they're like <laughs> chasing the other way. And yeah, it, it's again, it's one of those things where when everyone works together really well and you actually like shoot something and the other team is where you thought they were, you're like, fuck yes, we're on this, we've got them. And yeah, it <laughs> yeah, becomes exactly. this, yeah, it just, yeah, it gets everyone involved and becomes this very visceral kind of experience. Mm-hmm. And it solves that problem too, that sometimes with cooperative games, you just have one person who sort of runs the table and tells everyone else what they should do on their turn. Yeah. Um, but with the real-time aspect thrown on there, it's just impossible, right? Because everyone has their own role mm-hmm. to do that they've got to keep track of. And if they're trying to do too much else, they're going to completely fail yeah. at their own job. So Yeah, and again, it's just another another example of showing people the different ways in which games like exist these days. Yeah. Because like, Cause okay, you might not like this kind of game, but how about you try this other one? Because <laughs> it's completely different. Exactly, yeah. And there's that stereotype, too, of, you know, the, the gamers alone in their mom's basement or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And and so many of the games are so much more interactive than that and so much more social to that and have mm-hmm. that social component to the game itself that yeah. um, you can you can avoid that at all costs if you would like to. Because, yeah, I mean, because, like, what, what do you find that you get the most out of when it comes to board gaming? What do you find the most rewarding aspect? Um, I mean... Definitely, it's the I I enjoy the competitive aspect of it. So certainly in the in the sort of engine building games, it's like you know everyone's going to set up their own little uh, their own sort of economy, their own uh, uh, approach to the game, right? And try and score as many points as possible. And then you sort of see what everyone else is doing. Like, oh, he did that, and it got him twelve points. Oh, but he got a turn where he got fifteen points. And you sort of see how everyone has solved these puzzles together. I guess that's what really appeals to me the most is kind of that puzzle solving. Yeah. Um, but then the 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 social aspect worked into it just makes it so much more enjoyable. Yeah. Than just sitting at home by yourself doing it. So. Because yeah, because definitely like my my because my entire foundation like as you say like you you sort of dragged your your wife into playing like at the when I first got into board games I had a girlfriend at the time and I was basically. I was basically looking for like something else we could do together. I was like, okay, like we like watching movies. We're like, you know, going doing this stuff. But I just like was basically on the hunt for other stuff we could do together that was us hanging out while like doing a thing. So I was like, oh, board games would be a bit th- could be something. So I just kind of started looking into it from there and buying a few games that I thought she might want to play with me and that kind of stuff as something to do. And so that kind of branched out into you know, getting other people to do it, to socialize with me as well. Because, yeah, I definitely enjoy it as a as a social affair. Like, the, the social aspect of it is definitely the biggest thing for me. Yeah, it's sort of the, uh, it's, a, it's a paradox of sorts because a lot of games can be sort of very solitary and you're thinking mm-hmm. in your own little bubble, like, how am I going to plan this ahead? But then you need other people to play them with you as well. Yeah. But and that's also where a lot of the, the fun comes from, because if, if you're like, oh, I put together this really great combo, but no one is around to see it, then what was the point? Yeah, exactly. Which is which tends to be why I get to be like drawn to more of like, yeah, some of those social deduction games or games where like you have to, you know, communicate with people a lot more. There's a lot more interacting between people or where you like you can negotiate with people and make deals with them or you know, or even the co-op self where you have to have to talk to each other to make it work. Like I tend to be drawn far more towards games that give me a chance to socialize rather than games that necessarily have the tightest mechanics or puzzles to them in the world. Right. 
And there's been an interesting trend recently too of uh, of legacy games, yeah, which are games where from one session to the next, parts of the parts of the changes that you made to the game previously are permanent. Yeah. So there's one called uh, Pandemic Legacy, which is about you know sort of there's a plague taking over the world and and those sorts of things. So as the game goes on, there's sort of a story built into the game, yeah. And the choices you make in the earlier games will affect the later ones. So it's not just you know, let's do these mechanics. It's like, let's experience this story together and sort yeah. of shape it by our own choices. Yeah, so it's and... a lot like the sort of things that people get out of, you know, video games, all these video games with moral choices in them, like your, uh, you know, Skyrim and all of those sorts of things. But again, it's that, that group experience that makes it so much richer. Yeah, because something like that, I know with those games, because I have, have you played that at all or not? Yes, we just finished the second season of Pandemic Legacies. So we've played both the... Yeah, because that because that thing you're definitely buying like an experience because those things aren't really replayable, are they? Like you, once you've gone through and done it, you've because you make like don't you like rip up certain cards and you make some sort of yeah, permanent changes? Cards, you rip them up, you write on the board. There's yeah. also it. It feels very naughty when you do it, but yeah. it's very fun. But yeah, again, so that's the thing. Like obviously, it's a it's a lengthy experience. I assume like what well, probably going to take you like. You know, probably between 20 and 30 hours to play like the entire campaign through so yeah you know. something like that but yeah but obviously you don't replay it after that you you've had that experience so that's why you get a group of people and then you've had this experience and your experience might be different to another group of people who played the exact same game but you kind of have you come out of it with these stories of like oh man remember why we did this and then that happened and we failed at this uh-huh. and it kind of screwed us over later on down the track and it's more than just a game at that point it becomes something of a journey that you've taken together yeah exactly yeah and because i i enjoy i enjoy the part of games where you come out the other side having like memories and stories to tell from weird or crazy stuff that happened uh-huh which yeah like any any game that has a bit of a like a narrative aspect or something where you can you apply a little bit of more imagination to look at how the craziness of what just happened yeah and Again, the depending on what games you play, some of them have more narratives than others. But yeah. um, there are even some where the, the sort of narrative structure is built into the game. Yeah. Um, so something like, uh, there's a game called Above and Below, which we really enjoy. Yeah. Where again, on the on half of the game, you're sort of building your little village, um, and you know, uh, attracting new people to come to your village and building buildings and things like that. But then you can also sort of send people off to explore the caverns below your village. And then you sort of pick a random number from a book and then they'll read you a situation. Like you come across a guy who offers to sell you potions. Do you want to buy from him or not? And then mm. maybe you roll some dice to see how that encounter resolves. Uh, again, the, the story is really built into the, to the whole thing. Uh, yeah. And those decisions are not just this is the right thing to do in the game, but it's like in this situation, hmm. what would I do? And again, like there's a, like I think the other big one that sort of that thing stems from is Tales of the Arabian Nights, which is yes, yeah, it's very much like it's less of a game as it is you're playing this collective choose your own adventure story. Yeah, because your choices are very often sort of random what yeah. happens to you yeah. but, but then that's part it, of the adventure yeah like you're traveling around the world and you're like okay I've, I've gone here and it's like okay what do you want to do and like you choose thing and there's a, like a massive book which okay if you decide to do this you turn to this page and you like you reference these certain numbers because there's like any weird variety of combinations of things that could happen be like okay like i, ma- I married this person 
But then I left them and went overseas and I got imprisoned and then I went insane in prison and then I became rich and was attacked by a lion. Yeah, that all sounds reasonable to me. And yeah, it's, it's kind of it's like, okay, this is weird, but at the same time, it's like it becomes this <laughs> weird, absurd comedy as you travel around the world. Uh-huh. I think my favorite one of those was uh, early on in the game, I uh, defied some local customs by eating dates from a leather bag. <laughs> and then I was I was an outlaw because of that. And so then like, you know, nine turns later, some guys were going to rob me, but I was an outlaw. So they were all scared of me because I was the guy who ate dates from a leather bag once. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it every time. That was sacred That's dates. Yeah. A hard reputation. Yeah, so there's a lot of that, and I enjoy. And again, I it's because I always come from a perspective of what can I do to get people who seem less interested in this involved, and that kind of stuff seems seems to get people's attention. You get to come out of this with this stupid story that happened. Yeah, exactly. Because one per like I was playing Betrayal at House on the Hill is like a fairly famous game, which is basically you are collectively playing through what is pretty much a B horror movie, which. After us, like you, you're exploring this haunted mansion, and then at a certain point, something happens, which they call the haunt, and one of you inevitably becomes like a traitor, in some way, according to the game. And the game has fifty different scenarios that could play out from that basis. And I played it with a, a friend for the first time. Um, it was the first time she played it. She walked into a room, got stuck in a giant spider web, for like three turns in a row. As soon as she got out of the spider web. She like ran, like heard some creepy sound that made her run and jump out of a window, and then she went insane and died. And that was her entire experience with the game. So I was like, okay, in some ways, that's not a great way for the game for to go for you. But in the same way, that's a pretty amusing turn of events just to happen. Yes. We we always remember the time she got sent in sp- insane by spiderwebs. Uh huh. Yeah, so it, it's just the, the yeah the variety of stuff that can happen in that respect can is is really enjoyable. Yeah, definitely, and that's that's one of the things too about these games is, like you said, in Tales of the Arabian Nights, there's just so many things in that book that you're never going to run through them all, or yeah. you have to play the game hundreds of times to have seen absolutely everything in that book. Yeah, exactly, so. yeah, exactly, and you know. Different, different games you have to go into with different mindsets that depending on what you want to get out of it. If you want to have a real game experience, a game like that is not going to be the right choice for you at that very time because it's that, that it's not really a game. It's a yeah, it's an activity you do with people more than it is a game. Right. Yeah. So do you have do you have a favorite game that to- tops your list? Um, the one I always uh, say is my favorite game when pressed is a game called Indonesia. Right. Um, which is another one of these economic games. So you sort of start off with, there are various companies on the board. Um, so there's like uh, companies that grow rice or grow spices. And then there are shipping companies that will then transport the rice and spices to cities on the board. And right. so by owning uh, various companies, you just try and make as much money as possible. But the whole economy of the game, like even down to where the cities are and where the shipping lines are and all that sort of stuff, is all built up by the players. So everyone is making these decisions of like, oh, I'm going to put boats here but not here, or I'm going to expand my rice fields this way, um, sort of have these incredible sort of butterfly effects on the rest of the game of because you're all just trying to make as much money as possible, but there, these small decisions you make have big impacts later on, because there's all sorts of 
you know, mergers between companies and who has the proper amount of cash at the right time to buy the new company will then own the new one. And then it's just, it's just fascinating. It plays out very differently every time, even though it's a fairly static setup, just there are so many small decisions that get made that have big impacts later on that is very fascinating. Right. So does it, would that also be the same pick for the game you've played the most or would game you've played the most be different from that game? I think I think the one I've played the most is probably still Settlers, just because at oh, this yeah. point I have too many games that I don't have time to play oh, any yes. of them a hundred times anymore. But I do know that feeling. Uh huh. Do you do you also get sucked into the trap of buying games that you don't need to buy? Oh, always. Yeah. At this point, I'm I'm not sure I need to buy any more given uh, given the ones I have that I haven't even played yeah. yet. But how how many would you say you have that you haven't played yet? Oh, that I haven't played. Easily hundreds. Jesus Christ. Uh, probably wow. one to two hundred that I haven't played. Oh, it's terrible. Man, it's, yeah, my wife you... just left the house for a second, so I'm okay. But <laughs> she can, yeah, I can say that, but don't tell her. <laughs> oh, like she didn't leave the house permanently, right? She didn't just storm out and say she's never coming back. No, no. No, she just ran to the grocery. But right. I'll, I'll, I'll mute the podcast so she doesn't hear me say that. Yeah, okay. I'll just like, yeah, let me know. I'll just like put an expletive bleep over that part. Yeah, I'll, I'll be yeah, like, I don't know what happened. It was some kind of weird audio glitch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I only have, I think I only have maybe, at this point, I've got my my not played list down. I think I might only be on about four at this point. I, but then, That's but then again, good. you you have you own more games you haven't played than I own in total. So. <laughs> Yeah, and part of the problem is sometimes the collector in you kicks in and it's like, oh, this game is really rare and I found a really good yeah. price on it. Yeah. Or I'm going to collect all the games that won this particular award and then you buy 20 games that you haven't actually played yeah. yet. Because I definitely, when I, most of my purchasing was done within the first like year and a bit, like year and a half probably, where I just kind of got completely into it and spent like a few thousand dollars in a very short space of time. But as time goes on, I've I've been teaching myself to like scale it back a bit. Like, calm down. You don't yeah. need that. It's always a race at the beginning when you first learn about this whole world of games out there that you had no idea existed before of just like you're just frantically grabbing everything that looks new and exciting, which is basically everything yeah. at that point. Yeah. So it's a race of whether your your good sense catches up with you before you run out of shelf space. Yeah. And obviously... Um, Kickstarter is a big thing in the world of board games as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. Um, even it's getting to the point now where even established companies are just launching all of their new games as yeah. Kickstarters. Do you get sucked into that at all? Uh, I don't generally. One of the other people in my group, in my gaming group, pays a lot more attention to Kickstarter than I do, so mm. I rely on him to spend all the money there, so that, I can spend all my money elsewhere. That's very handy. Because, yeah, I, I mean, for people who don't know, Kickstarter is basically a website where people will launch projects of a sort of kind. So, like, and they're going, I'm seeking fund money, people to fund this and pitch in money. And, you know, so they'll have their proposal, like, this is the board game I'm proposing. This is what it is. Here's some, like, some have more information than others. Some are very clearly scams. And some are, like, legit things run by, like, bigger companies. And some are genuine, like, more small independent people trying to get the money to fund this game they couldn't fund otherwise. But there's a shitload of money that goes into specifically board gaming Kickstarters. 
Yeah, and I think originally it was sort of intended as more, we're an independent company, we're not going to have the money to do this project unless we fundraise up yeah. front. And then it sort of morphed into just a, a sort of distribution platform of its own. Exactly. Like It definitely started as a Even more earnest earnest fundraising thing. But at the moment now, it's like people that no, even know they could release a game at retail and sell it, they do not They because they just get, I think, more money doing it through the Kickstarter avenue. Yeah, and it's also it's also one of those things. I mean, I say big board game companies, but unless you're, you know, Hasbro or one of the really huge conglomerates that sells things in Target or whatever, every board game company is a small company. Yeah, exactly. So for a lot of them, it's just a way of mitigating risk. It's not I should I shouldn't characterize it as a money grab because it just it just helps them uh, get a lot of pre-orders up front and make sure they have the demand for their games. Um, and it's a marketing tool also. Yeah, it definitely uh, is. Like pe- pe- a lot of people, because I've been swayed by it a few times, but as time goes on, I'm definitely not so much these days. There's a lot of interesting things on there, but there's a lot of people that just get very invested in all of it. They're like, yep, I'll, like, I'll throw money behind this thing. They're backing like 20 different things at once that they still haven't even received, and they enjoy feeling like part of something and getting the regular updates from all these things they have coming. Right. It is a nice surprise when like six months later you just get a random package in the mail and you're like, oh, I wonder what Kickstarter thing this is. Oh, yeah. I definitely like, yeah, because normally the few ones I have booked, I've just I've backed every once in a while you get like a shipping notification several months later. He's like, I, what what am I even getting? What's coming to me? I have no idea. Uh-huh. But there's also still one I backed like uh, oh, probably it's over a year and a half now. That's still that's still waiting. It's just like I'm like, oh well, maybe it'll never show up because that is also the risk it uh-huh. takes. Sometimes like things go screwy and they never show up when they're supposed to, and you know a lot of issues can happen behind the scenes on these sort of things. Yeah, this is the the upside though of board games is the it's not it's never a huge investment that you're making in any one game so if yeah. one of them sort of falls apart it's not the end of the world generally and, speaking i mean sometimes they get bigger and bigger especially on kickstarter at the moment like presently there's a big batman one on kickstarter which the most base version of the game is 140 dollars like us plus whatever shipping is on top of that but then like uh-huh and that's like the base thing, but it's a lot of one that has like added scenarios and expansions. It's a very miniatures heavy game. And for people that don't know, miniatures are like the tiny little plastic figurines like you might see in Warhammer and stuff like that. And they are an excellent way for people to drive up prices of board games because there's a lot of people out there who like paying a lot of money for pieces of plastic. Uh-huh. Yeah. So to get every- one of the things that just catches people's eyes very yeah, quickly. Exactly. It looks neat. So, you know, mm-hmm. to to get this entire the entire thing they're having for this Batman one is three hundred and twenty bucks US plus whatever shipping oh, would be on top of that. Insane. So like I, I definitely never remotely considered it, but were I to want to do that, that would cost me close to five hundred bucks Australian all up to get that for what amounts right. to one game, which is insanity. Yeah, that's that's crazy to me. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I've definitely backed a couple of those ones, which are sort of bigger and have a lot of bits and pieces, but I've got that out of my system now, and I have, I'm like, I don't need to do that again. I'm like, that's cool, I got, all uh-huh. this, I got all this neat stuff, but it's not that important. So, yeah, I definitely will not be going down that avenue again now that I've done it before. 
Yeah. Did you get in on uh, Gloomhaven? I did not, but a you friend are. of mine, a friend of mine, just did. So he he spent the money, so I don't have to. So he's he's currently trying to organize. Uh, yeah, I'm paying for that one. Well, I mean, a, a group to play yeah. that one. But yeah, because I think again, I'll uh, I'll explain. The uh, Gloomhaven is a sort of another one of these legacy games. It's basically a role playing game in a box hmm. that you have a, a sort of campaign of your. Uh, again, trying to build up your small village and fight back against these terrible monsters that are coming, you know, to uh, to attack you and things. And over time, you sort of build up your characters like you would in a role playing game, and that's the the sort of legacy aspect to it. Is you're you're playing this campaign throughout, and again, it comes with just mountains and mountains of things in the box. It's probably like a thirty pound game. It weighs mm. thirty pounds. I'm sure. Probably, definitely would. But yeah, and you know, so people realize how much money these kind of like big games make. They make we're talking like they raise millions upon millions of dollars through this avenue. I, yeah, I, I think yeah, I think the highest one raised, I think got up to like nine or ten million, like completely raised for people backing it. So you know, it's there's definitely for the successful ones, which are definitely few and far between, but they definitely right. can get pretty successful by especially by Kickstarter standards. So, do you have any, like, Holy Grail-type games out there that you've always been trying to hunt down to add to your collection of games you haven't played? Um, there's a, there's a couple that I, uh, I sort of had on my list for a while that I've, I've managed to buy. Um, there's one called, uh, Queen's Gambit, which is based off of, uh, episode one of Star Wars. Um, the best Star Wars, so obviously. This is the- of course, the best one. Uh, this is the sequence at the end of the movie where there's like, you know, three different battles going on. There's like the space battle and the land battle where they could have killed Jar Jar Binks, but they didn't. Um, and then like the queen is like fighting her way into the palace and the Jedis are fighting down in like the reactor room. It's like the big climactic battle of everything. Yeah. Um, and so this game, you're literally playing all four of the battles at once. Hmm. Uh and so there's this like big three tiered board that represents the palace, and then you have all these miniatures over to the side, uh, with like the the Gungans and everybody fighting on the in the land battle. And so you're just sort of playing all of these at once. Um, and so this was a game that was put out by a big company, by Hasbro, like mass marketed everywhere. It was on like every toy store shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of the serious gamers just assumed it was a crap game. Um, all of the people who like shopped at Hasbro thought it was too expensive and too complicated to buy for like their 10 year old for Christmas. So it just went nowhere, but it's in fact a really enjoyable game and, and really interesting. So, um, so now you can get like 300 bucks for one easily on eBay. Yeah. Um, Cause, I, game. Cause I knew I'd heard the name. I knew there was the star Wars game and it was called the queen's gambit. And it was one of those games that, yeah, people, people knew of, and it was better than they expected, but I never actually knew what the game itself was. But yeah, that that does sound very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a very uh, sort of tactical war game sort of thing. Hmm. Um, but you're sort of balancing your attention between all of the different aspects of the battles that are going on because hmm. uh, it's card driven. So you have cards that might say, you know, attack with your Jedi warrior, or you know, attack with four guards, or you know, four battle droids, or whatever. Um, but you've got to choose like which cards you want to play and which aspects of the battle you want to focus on every time you play a card. Right. So it's a balancing act, but letting your opponent get too far ahead in certain areas. So is this uh, like a one-on-one type game? Yes, it is. Right. Yes. 
Because, yes, Star Wars is definitely something that it has quite a lot of coverage in the board game world as well. Yes. Without a doubt. And I assume that will go up in the next couple of years. Oh, yeah, uh, I don't... With the uh, and everything for all the new movies and... Yeah, I don't think that's going to be slowing down anytime soon. <laughs> yes, I don't think so. Uh, so, um, has there been anything in particular that you've been you know very underwhelmed by as a game like something you thought was going to be good or something things that you were very disappointed by um i can't really think of any i mean every now and again it's it's just a matter of taste like everything else so mm. every now and again you hear a game hear about a game that you know someone someone on the internet was giving rave reviews to and someone that you normally like the same games they do said oh this game was great i loved it and then you just sort of get it and play it and you're like well was was that it? I didn't really. That was okay. Uh, so, so you know, it's like it's like movies. Every once in a while, you watch a movie and you hear all these great reviews of it, and then you see it and you're like, "Well, did I watch the same movie as everyone else?" Yeah. It just you know sort of misses for you. But I don't remember any real awful clunkers. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, well, one does come to mind actually. Now that I think about it, which is um, there's this there's this game called Senator, right? Um. And so the it's you're in the Roman Senate and you're sort of, you know, using your influence to pass whatever policies are going to help your faction or whatever. Um, and so it's basically an auction game, right? You have cards from your hand and you keep bidding and it's like you're literally bidding your influence and whoever, you know, pays the most influence to the into the pot gets to, you know, make it go their way, whatever that is. But everyone has one card that's the assassin card, right? We're playing into the Roman theme and Stat and Caesar in the back and all of that. But what the assassin card does is um, you can play it as the as the auction is going on and people are bidding more and more, right? And you play this card and then you say, okay, I'm blowing up this entire auction. The card that everyone was bidding on goes away. All of the money you offered to spend on that card also goes away and everyone just loses everything. Right. <laughs> And then everyone gets one of these cards that they're allowed to play every round. So the only time I played this game, someone won one to zero to zero to zero because only one person managed to actually win a damn auction the entire game. <laughs> because everyone else just kept burning it down. Kept blowing everything up. It's like, oh, I'm not going to win this one. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. You give you give people too much chance to be an asshole and they're just going to go all out. Yes, exactly. You, you need to rein it in a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Ah, well. Um, what about the opposite? Has there been any any particular type of games where you were not expecting much out of it and came away pleasantly surprised? Um. Oh man. I don't know. I usually get so excited to try new games that <laughs> uh, that I'm uh, I'm hyped up for every new one that I play. Yeah. Um, I but certainly Indonesia, the one that I mentioned before, was the first game where I played it once and I was just like, oh, I'm going to love this game. I mean, that's always a good, because a lot of games, some games take a lot of, like, you get you don't really get the sense of it the first time. So you're like, that was okay, but I'm not sure. But it's kind of good when you have that thing with the game you play, you're like, that was good. I got to play that more. Yeah. And just as it goes on, you sort of see all the possibilities opening up and all the things that you could do differently next time and sort of all the potential that's there. Mm. And like as you as you mentioned before, with kind of watching the videos online of like people who are raving, have you gotten much into the sort of YouTube stuff that's out there and cultivate the people that you know you can listen to and know the ones you do and don't agree with these days? 
Yeah, somewhat. And I mean, the the biggest thing for me is once you've played enough games, you get a good feel for what's to your taste and what's not. Yeah. Um, and so pretty much anyone who gives a review, even if they say, I like this game because it let me stab my friends in the back a lot. Well, that still lets me know that it's not going to work well for my group or that yeah. sort of thing. Um, but there really is a great community. There are a lot of people putting out really good high quality videos that'll give you a sense of what a game's all about before you invest any money in it yeah because i mean i think it's because it is becoming somewhat of an expense it can become somewhat of an expensive hobby especially if like you apparently like buying as many games as by the sounds of it you do so it's yeah it's definitely good to be able to figure that stuff out or have people like narrowing down some of that stuff beforehand so you could do the research yes and and it does get to a point where it sort of slows down naturally on its own, where you sort of start to think, well, I have three games already that are similar to that one. Do I really need another one? And so it's only when something really new and innovative comes out that you think, oh, I've got to have yeah. that. And, and, and it's also, you've got to sometimes distance yourself from all those people raving about the new thing coming out to, because people do get caught up in a lot of new things coming out very easily. Yes, very much so. Uh, okay, so if you were gonna recommend like some real like I know the term thrown about is gateway games like so for people who maybe want to try get into board games who don't have an abundance of experience, what well, what are some good op- options you'd recommend them to kick off with from your your tastes and your opinions? Right. Um, so uh, let's see. I would say I agree with you. One, uh, everybody needs one social deduction game whether it's Secret Hitler or uh, The Resistance, uh, something along those lines. Yeah, uh, I found always good. a good one I've gotten recently is also called um, Deception, Murder in Hong Kong. Because oh, I played that one once. Yeah, that's very interesting. Especially, it's good for the people who don't, because a lot of times people can struggle with lying in those games. Like, they don't feel like they're good at it. Where, like, because of, like, because of the style of the game, it's more, like, trying to push people towards other things because like someone's silently trying to give clues and it i don't know it gives a more comfortable structured way for people to lie if they're not good at lying themselves so yeah right and I've it, def- i was gonna say it puts a lot of the onus on one person so the person yeah. who knows the game really well can sort of run it and yeah. then you can sort of bring other people along with you yeah exactly it's uh, it's less it's less stressful for the kind of people that don't necessarily get on board with those games right um, another, another great, uh, gateway game is called Bonanza, mm. um, which is a, a game. Well, so you're a bean farmer in this game, which again, sounds very exciting. Um, <laughs> but the, the mechanics of the game are all about, uh, trading and negotiation. So you get mm. dealt a hand of cards, um, and you want to plant those, you want to collect cards that are the same. And so collect a bunch of one type of bean and plant them all in a field and then harvest them for a bunch of points. Yeah. Um, the downside is that you're not allowed to rearrange your hand. So you have to play the cards in the order that you get them, right. which very often is not the correct order. Um, but the way around that is if you trade with other people, then you can just get things out of your hand that you don't want anymore. So the game yeah. really forces you to negotiate very heavily with everyone else. Yeah. Um, and so that, again, makes it a lot more social, a lot more interactive and gets at a lot of the things that people enjoy about, say, something like Monopoly or something like that is that negotiation and trading aspect. Um yeah, in a little bit more streamlined package. Yeah, because like I found a lot of like the ga- successful games, they've taken like the parts that people maybe like about something like a Monopoly, which is you know the buying, you know the buying the hotels, the buying the real estate, the negotiating and making deals, and just kind of 
cutting out everything else that wastes time in between. Yes, exactly. Because like no one actually cares about the rolling and moving around the board part of Monopoly. It's just like it's the thing that you have to do. So like if you just eliminate that portion out of the game and focus on the other parts, already you have a drastically improved game. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Okay, any, any other good ones that you'd throw out there for people? Um, another good one I throw out is a game called Splendor, mm-hmm. um, which is a game where you're trying to uh, sort of buy and collect uh, gems, and then the more expensive gems are worth more points. Um, it's a good introduction into this uh, engine-building type game, um, because when you buy a gem of a particular color, say an emerald, right, then that makes every other gem you buy after that for the rest of the game cheaper. It costs you one fewer green unit of money, whatever it is in the game, um, to buy, right? So every gem you buy sort of makes all the later gems cheaper, and so you're sort of working your way up to the more expensive gems, which are worth lots and lots of points. Hmm. So so it's a really good entry into that uh, the engine-building idea. Hmm. And uh, I always think as someone, anyone getting in new should probably also get like get into like a co-op game of some kind because that also I've noticed people if people don't like the competitive aspect cooperative games have a good opportunity of getting people involved so they can play a game without feeling like somebody's going to beat them yeah and especially when you're not sure what to do having yeah. teammates who can advise you on the best possible choices yeah. um can be really helpful for your first couple of games yeah so do you have any like particular co-op ones that you like Pandemic is a is a classic one that sort of yeah. kicked off the whole uh, co-op. Yeah, it definitely trend. did. Sort of the first one. Um, that's a that's a really good one. Um, you, so in that one again, you're sort of trying to fight all these diseases that are spreading across the whole world. Yeah, and you sort of see the foundations of that game that permeate through co-op games as they've continued they they a lot of them are still based on the a very similar structure that pandemic kind of created yeah which is basically on your turn you do four actions to help everyone yeah and then you draw a card from the deck that says something terrible happens exactly like you have this selection of actions you can do you know maybe there's like six different things you can do and you can do three of those on your turn and then yeah exactly you play your cards you pick up new ones and bad things happen at the end of a round and then you keep trying to fix those bad things Uh uh-huh um i would say my favorite cooperative game uh is a game called hanabi ah yes also a very different animal to to anything else Hmm. um it's this very strange game where you have a hand of cards but you cannot see your own cards you can see everyone else's cards but your own Hmm. uh and so the goal of the game is to sort of give each other clues uh, about what's in everyone else's hand. Um, so you can sort of figure out like, oh, I have a green one, so I can play that. Because you're sort of trying to play cards uh, in order uh, collectively um, throughout the table. And so you're sort of trying to use deduction and give people clues so that you can tell them what's in their hand. And you can hopefully figure out what you have in your hand and what's the right time to play your cards. It's it's very fascinating. Yeah, it's and yeah, I, I remember reading about someone who was him and his friends were trying to play that game as a competitive game, and he did not realize for several like rounds of the game that they were doing it wrong, and they were wondering why the game was so terrible. Yes, I can, <laughs> I can imagine that would be a very good experience. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the kind of thing that would turn you off a game. Yes. 
Uh, well, unless unless you have any other particularly exciting recommendations to throw up to people, I think we can wrap things up. I think that's all I got for now. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining me and giving me the opportunity to also ramble about board games for a bit because I enjoy it as well. Yeah, I loved it. I had a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, yeah, thanks very much, man. Uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening, everybody. Follow, like, subscribe, do all that kind of stuff. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your ministers, tell your senators, etc., about this podcast. But apart from that, um, we'll see you all next week. And until then, please keep on caring.